0: I wanna open today with a passage from the book of Romans. It's found in Romans chapter three, verse 28. The Apostle Paul says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. The title today is Jews and Gentiles. We've been studying the Book of Romans at our church, and I I want to talk today a, a bit about what Romans has to say about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. This issue is the primary disagreement we have with mainstream theology, and studying it can be helpful in not only discussions we have with them, but also in our own understanding. This is review for many of you, but review isn't a bad thing. And for children growing up, for new converts, it's an important subject to cover periodically. Before we begin, I want to make a note of the complexities of the word Jew. I want to apologize in advance because that term will come up a lot today. Now in Revelations 2.9, it says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And Revelations 3.9 repeats the warning. It says, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. The word Jew in scripture can refer to two very different groups of people. As Revelation says, there's a group of people claiming the name Jew, which are lying. They're using the term Jew to claim the heritage of God's people, yet they're not actually descendants of Israel. But that's not the case in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses the word Jew to refer to remnants of the kingdom of Judah. Now, as I'll be using it today, the word Jew means Judean. Sorry for any confusion, but I want to make this as easy as possible to understand for a person who doesn't necessarily understand everything that we do. So since the King James uses the word Jew to name the Judean community in the book of Romans, that's what I'll be using today. We won't touch on the subject of uh, false Jews today. Okay, I want you to consider the book of Romans. The book of Romans is one of the most pivotal books of the Bible. Martin Luther said of Romans, the epistle or this epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily. One of the church fathers, St. Augustine, even credited the Book of Romans with his conversion. The Book of Romans is probably the most studied book of the Bible. Many commentaries talk of Romans as offering a summary of Christianity itself. The Book of Romans is absolutely key to understanding God's plan of salvation. But sadly, for much of the modern Christian world, the Book of Romans has become a source of confusion rather than of truth. Amen. If you ask the average Christian today what the message of Romans is, the answer you're likely to get is, Romans teaches all people everywhere have free access to God's grace through faith. For the modern church, Romans is seen as a primary source material for the belief salvation has been open to every nation, every people, every race. Amen. But the fact is, the book of Romans doesn't actually teach that. Much to the contrary, Romans upholds the sovereignty of God to choose a particular people for his own through election. Amen. Amen. So let's look at the book of Romans. To understand Romans, actually to understand any of the epistles, it's helpful to understand the purpose behind the letter. Why did Paul write the book of Romans? A little history of the church at Rome is appropriate here. The church was likely founded by Jews who had attended the miraculous events at Pentecost recorded in Acts. Acts chapter two and verse five and also verse 10 tells us there were Jews attending Pentecost who came from Rome. Rome had a substantial Judean community at the time, the fourth largest in the world. And when these travelers returned home, they brought back news of the miracles they had seen and they founded a church. This church began as all the first Christian churches did among the Jewish or Judean community and it began with Jewish Jewish traditions. But then several years later, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Claudius expelled the entire community when unrest and riots arose in the Jewish district over a man named, a records name as Crestus. Historians believe that Crestus refers to Christ. So there were violent disputes over Jesus Christ in the Jewish community, and that led to the expulsion of all Jews from Rome. Now when the Jews of Rome were exiled, that left only the Gentile members of the church. The church at Rome, which had begun exclusively Jewish, now became exclusively Gentile. After several years, the next Emperor Nero brought the Jews back to Rome. So you had these Jewish Christians, among them Priscilla and Aquila, who had left a church dominated by Jewish tradition, returning to a church now dominated and led by Gentile tradition. So to summarize, the church at Rome began under Jewish leadership with Jewish traditions. Then it switched entirely to Gentile control and Gentile traditions. Finally, the return of the Jews to Rome led to a conflict between those two traditions. And this is what the book of Romans is about. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Romans to deal with the conflict between the traditional Jewish reliance on law and the Gentile tradition which had grown up without the law, Jews versus Gentiles. Paul begins the letter by convicting both sides under sin. He goes on to tell them both sides are the same and that they both require justification which comes through faith. And he then goes on to talk of the need for sanctification which involves keeping the law. But as Paul addresses the conflict, he does something interesting. He begins by highlighting circumcision. Romans 2 verse 23, let me read a few verses here for you. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God." Now what's curious here is the emphasis on circumcision. The Jews were pushing the Gentiles to be circumcised, but why? Modern Christians might assume this was connected to law keeping, that the Jews thought you had to be circumcised to keep the law, you had to be circumcised to be righteous. And that assumption is understandable. You know, the Jews were also pushing law or law keeping to earn salvation, works instead of faith. And Paul chastises them for that. But the push for circumcision is something different. If you know your Bible history, circumcision is not actually part of Mosaic law. Circumcision comes from the Abrahamic covenant, not Mosaic law. Circumcision is not about being righteous. It's about being a descendant of Abraham, about being an Israelite. Yeah. You can see this separation between circumcision and the law confirmed in how Paul speaks about it. You know, In verse 25, he speaks of the circumcision as either keeping the law or breaking it. For Paul, circumcision was not a matter of keeping the law. Someone who, has, who was circumcised might keep the law or they might break it. Circumcision identified a people, not a law. In verse 26, Paul talks about the uncircumcised keeping the law. In 27, he talks about the letter of the law and circumcision as two separate things altogether, side by side. For Paul, the act of circumcision identified the Judean community. Circumcision was not about righteousness. Circumcision was about identity. That's how both the Jews and Paul looked at it. By demanding circumcision, the Jews weren't asking the Gentiles to be righteous. They were telling the Gentile converts they had to mark themselves as descendants of Abraham. Jews were telling Gentiles to be Christian requires acknowledging their identity as Israelites. Yes, now think about that. To the modern way of thinking, if Christianity is open to all peoples, all races, that doesn't make any sense. To put it in perspective, imagine demanding, or demanding Gentiles be circumcised would be like a Lutheran demanding that all Lutherans convert and speak German. Yeah. Or a Scottish Presbyterian demanding converts all wear kilts. You know, that of course sounds ridiculous to us. And it is. The language you speak, the dress you wear, uh, is a sign of identity, not righteousness. And since you don't have to be German to be Lutheran, it makes no sense to demand signs of German heritage to be Lutheran. Germans may have founded Lutheranism, but Lutheranism is not about being German. Demanding someone wear a kilt, marking themselves as Scottish to be Presbyterian, seems ridiculous to us because anyone can be Presbyterian. Wearing a kilt has nothing to do with being Presbyterian, even though the Presbyterian church has deep roots in Scotland. So if Christianity were open to people of any heritage, as many Christians believe today, circumcision would have nothing to do with Christianity. It would be ridiculous for the Jews to demand the Gentiles adopt a sign of Abrahamic heritage to be Christian. But the thing is, that's exactly what the Jews did. To the Judeans of Paul's day, demanding circumcision to be Christian, a sign of identity, not righteousness, did not seem silly at all. It was very important to them, to the point it caused serious conflict in the early church. Now why did they think that was necessary? Well, most Christians today don't realize Christianity is built on the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Let's take a quick look at the Abrahamic covenant first found in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 beginning in verse one. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a a blessing. And I will and i will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed that's the first set of promises god made to abraham and he followed those up with more in genesis 17, 1. Amen. genesis 17, 1. and when abraham was 90 year, or abram was 90 years old and 9 the lord appeared to abram and said unto him i am thy, the, the almighty god walk before me and be thou perfect and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. So God promised Abraham and his seed line four things, land, offspring, blessing, and to be their God. Now, what does that mean? You know, Land and offspring are easy enough, but what does it mean that God promised blessing? And what does it mean that God promised to be the God of Abraham and God to the seed of Abraham after him? Later, God goes on to reiterate those promises to Isaac and then again to Jacob. But what really is this promise to the fathers? Well, in the book of Luke, we find out the advent of Christ is fulfillment of these promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to Luke chapter one, verses 67 through 73. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This was spoken about Jesus. The Holy Spirit tells us here, Jesus came to perform the mercy promised to Abraham. Scripture tells us very plainly, Jesus came as a result of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Amen. And take a look at Galatians 3 in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant which was, that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Amen. So again, scripture tells us Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham. It says the inheritance, what we're talking about here is salvation, the inheritance or salvation, was promised to Abraham and his descendants. And in addition, consider what it says in verse 17. What covenant was 430 years before the law was given to Moses? That was the Abrahamic covenant. But it also says the same covenant was confirmed in Christ. So what covenant did the blood of Christ confirm? That's the new covenant, isn't it? The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of Christianity. It's the foundation of salvation. God made a promise to Abraham of not only land and offspring. God also promised Abraham redemption. The coming of Jesus, the crucifixion, the redemption, even the new covenant are all facets of the Abrahamic covenant. They are the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham and his offspring. To the Jews, the Judeans of Paul's day, to be redeemed, to be saved, required being part of the Abrahamic covenant because salvation was a promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Salvation required being part of this covenant of salvation. It required being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the Jews believed. And what's more interesting, the Apostle Paul acknowledges this requirement as well. Now the Apostle Paul did say the Jews should stop bothering the Gentiles about circumcision. He says it very clearly in Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Circumcision was simply a sign, a token of the covenant as Genesis seventeen eleven says. It was a symbol of faith. The symbol wasn't important, the faith was. But while Paul said circumcision was not necessary for the Gentiles, Paul actually reinforces the necessity of being a descendant of Abraham. In Romans chapter two, Paul says circumcision is unnecessary, but only because circumcision is not what makes you a descendant of Abraham. It's what you are inside that makes you a descendant of Abraham. Paul discards the necessity of circumcision, but he does not discard the necessity of being a child of Abraham. Take a look back at verse 28 of Romans two. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter. Now remember, the subject of the book of Romans is a dispute over identity in the church. The Jews are demanding the Gentiles identify as, as Israelites. The Gentiles are resisting because they didn't grow up with circumcision. But notice, Paul doesn't tell them identity doesn't matter. That would have been simple enough if that's what the early church believed. Instead, Paul talks about what it is that makes someone a Judean. He treats their identity as important. He treats being a descendant of Abraham as important. He says, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, so it's not the traditions you keep that make you Judean. Getting circumcised doesn't make you a descendant of Abraham, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. It's what you are inside that makes you a descendant of Abraham. Paul refutes the importance of circumcision, but the importance of descent from Abraham is reinforced. To mainstream theology, the question of what makes someone Judean is a meaningless question. If mainstream theology is correct, it doesn't matter. But it did matter to Paul. Another passage which shows Paul's view of the importance of Abrahamic lineage is Romans 9, 4, and 5. Paul writes, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Now look back through that list. The adoption in Christian theology refers to when a person becomes a son or daughter of God, a child of God. Paul tells us the adoption pertains to Israelites. The glory refers to the perfection of the coming kingdom of God. You know In scripture, the glorified body is the resurrected body. This glory pertains to Israelites. The covenants, that's the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the new covenant, the covenants all pertain to Israelites. The law, the service of God, and the promises. Here Paul refers again to the promises made to Abraham and his his descendants, and he goes on to highlight that Christ is a fulfillment of one of those promises. Paul says these all pertain to Israelites. The Apostle Paul very clearly tells us that every promise of Christianity, from becoming a child of God to the resurrection to Christ himself, are all connected to Israelites. Paul tells us being a descendant of Abraham is a necessary component of Christianity. Now everyone here knows modern theology disagrees vehemently with this in principle. The modern church will tell you a person's origin, their race has no bearing on salvation. Their position is that everyone is welcome to salvation. No connection to Abraham is necessary. But I specify they disagree only in principle because if you go deeper into the subject, you'll find even mainstream theology is forced to take a detour and acknowledge in actual fact a connection exists between redemption and the Abrahamic covenant. If you ask the average Christian today about the Abrahamic covenant, he'll tell you, God has a special relationship with Abraham, and with Israel. If you point to many of the passages that specify the details of that relationship, mainstream theology does not deny them. You know, mainstream theology will tell you the land promised to Abraham still belongs to the physical descendants of Abraham. Mainstream Christians still apply the blessing from Genesis, I will bless them that bless you, to the people they regard as the physical descendants of Abraham. And curiously, if you point to the connection between Christ and the mercy promised to the descendants of Abraham, mainstream theology does not actually deny it. It doesn't disagree. Instead, they respond by saying everyone becomes a spiritual child of Abraham through faith. Now those two mainstream positions are contradictory. To say no connection to Abraham is necessary is contradictory to the idea that the path to salvation involves becoming a spiritual child of Abraham. It's also contradictory to say the promise of land is to a physical seed line, but the, the promise of Christ is to a spiritual seed line. Those two mainstream positions are rife with contradiction. Yet most modern denominations believe both at the same time. Modern theology acknowledges there is a special relationship between God and the seed of Abraham, but at the same time they nullify that special relationship by claiming God has opened the special relationship to everyone. Kind of reminds me of participation ribbons. Yes, God has a special relationship with Abraham. Yes, the descendants are chosen. Doesn't really mean much if God has a special relationship with everybody, if everybody's chosen. There are no longer any blue ribbons. Everyone gets a ribbon, a green ribbon. Everyone's special, everyone's chosen. Mainstream theology has internal conflict on this subject. Yet a mainstream Christian today will still tell you that's what scripture says. And one of the primary passages they'll point to is Romans chapter nine. So let's go to Romans chapter nine and verse six. It's right after the passage we just read where Paul tells us the adoption, the glory, the kingdom, the promises, Christ himself all pertain to Israel. Then he says in verse six, not as though the word of God has taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So the mainstream interpretation of this statement, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, is that this shows God opened the promise up. They say this passage shows that God widened the promise to include everyone. It's not the physical descendants anymore, now it's anyone of faith. But is that what Paul really says here? You know, Paul does say they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But he goes on to say it's the children of the promise that are counted for the seed. Now many people read that as simply a reference to people who have faith. But Paul explains what he means by children of the promise. In verse nine he says, for this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So the children of promise are the children of Isaac. He's talking about God's statement in Genesis 21:12, where he says, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. The Apostle Paul shows the promise of God was narrowed from a promise made to all of Abraham's seed to a promise made only to the seed of Isaac. You know, Ishmael was a child of Abraham, but he was not chosen. Right. Just being a descendant of Abraham, just being a child of flesh is not enough. Amen. The seed of Abraham was called exclusively through Isaac. So a seed of promise also has to be a descendant of Isaac. And then Paul tells us God narrowed it even further to just the seed of Jacob. Amen. If you're honest with this passage, this passage is not about widening who the children of God It's actually narrowing it. Modern Christians read this passage to say God is opening the promise wider, opening it to everyone, but the opposite is actually true. The point of this passage is the sovereign right of God to election. It's about the right of God to choose who he will have mercy on. God chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. As verse 17 says, he did this so the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. When Paul says earlier in verse six, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, Paul is telling us God retains the right to choose who he will. Even among Israelites, God retains the right to choose. God chooses among men. The idea God no longer has a chosen people when it comes to salvation is completely opposite the whole focus of this passage. We'll talk more about elections in a minute, but for now drop down to verse 24. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in O.C., I will call them my people which were not my people and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now here most Christians, most modern Christians might think they have absolute proof that God opened the covenant up to everyone. It says very plainly, I will call them my people which were not my people. How much more clear can we get? This passage is speaking of the Gentiles and it seems to prove the common assumption that the Gentiles are not Israelites. They are people who are not chosen by God and now God has chosen them. Mainstream theology will tell you this passage shows after the cross, God has opened his promise of salvation to all people, where once they were not God's people, now they are the children of God. But again, if we look more closely at what Paul writes, that's not what this passage actually says. Paul tells us this passage is a quote from the book of Hosea. When we look at the first chapter of Hosea, where Paul takes the quote from, it shines a new light on what's being said here in Romans. In verse 6 and 7 of Hosea 1, it says, I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. Now, many modern Christians are unaware of biblical history. They're unaware the children of Israel were divided at one point into two separate nations, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Now, as this passage says, God had mercy on Judah. God maintained his relationship with the kingdom of Judah. And it was the descendants of these Judeans from which Christ came. It's the descendants of these same Judeans that Paul is talking to in the book of Romans when he says the word Jew. But here in Hosea, it also says, while God had mercy on Judah, he did not have mercy on Israel. God was angry with the northern kingdom of Israel for their, for their idolatry, and God decided to judge them, to cast them off. It's a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, 64, where God warns Israel if they sin, it says, the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. The Israelites of the northern kingdom were scattered among the nations of the earth. The prophet Jeremiah describes it as God divorcing Israel. And in verse nine, God says to this northern kingdom of Israel, ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. But then in verse 10, this judgment is followed by a prophecy of mercy. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. And that's where the quote found in Romans comes from. What we see in this quote refers to a prophecy of a reuniting of the tribes of Israel. The children of Israel were cast off and the scattered among the nations, the children of Israel of which it was said, you're not my people, would be called the sons of God once again. Paul goes on to reinforce this reference to prophecy in verse 27 with a citation from Isaiah 10 where Isaiah also prophesies of a reuniting of the cast off of, the, of Israel with the house of Jacob. Paul is talking about the Gentiles here, but he makes very clear these people of who it was said, you're not my people, are the remnant of Israel that were cast off among the nations. The word Gentile comes from the Greek word ethnos, which means nations. When Paul says Gentiles, he's referring to these Israelites scattered among the nations. And Paul talks to the, Greeks at Rome, he refers back to these prophecies in Hosea and Isaiah of reuniting of the tribes of Israel. And the reason he does this is that these Gentiles were that remnant of Israel. The Greek-speaking European peoples that had joined the church at Rome were descendants of the scattered tribes of Israel. For further confirmation, this is what Paul thought, we can look forward to Romans eleven twenty-five. 25. Romans 11 is a famous passage where Paul talks about the grafting in of the wild olive branch. Again, mainstream theology cites this wild branch as people other than Israel. In their view, the tree is Israel, and the wild branch must be people that are foreign to Israel. But in verse 25, Paul says, Blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Now, three things I want to highlight. It says the grafting in of the Gentiles means all Israel will be saved. It doesn't say, and so all the world will be saved. It doesn't say, and so foreigners will be saved too. It says the saving of the Gentiles means all Israel will be saved. All Israel as opposed to just part of Israel. Paul is talking about the Gentiles of the northern kingdom of Israel being saved along with the Judeans of the southern kingdom of Judah. He's talking about this prophecy of a reuniting of, of all Israel back together. And backing that up, Paul also says that the deliverer turns ungodliness from Jacob. Again, he doesn't say the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, turns ungodliness from the world. Paul specifies Jesus turns ungodliness from Jacob, from Israel. According to Paul, this grafting in of the wild olive branch results in Jesus saving the descendants of Jacob from sin. The wild branch is descended from Jacob. And finally, Paul says this forgiveness of sins, this taking away of sin, is part of the covenant God had with these people. This is a reverence to the Abrahamic covenant the covenant that promised redemption to the descendants of Abraham. But Paul says this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, was made with these people, with this olive, wild olive branch. Paul is saying the Gentiles, the wild branch, are the descendants of Abraham. Paul also says the same thing in Romans 4. One more passage shows Paul viewing the Gentiles, these Greek-speaking Europeans, as a scattered tribes of Israel, Romans 4, 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul says the promise is is sure to all the seed of Abraham. Again, all the seed as opposed to just part of the seed. The seed of the law, which is the Judeans, and the seed of faith. He's talking about the Gentiles here. But the seed of faith is part of the same seed of Abraham. The Gentiles didn't have the law because God had cast them off. But Paul refers to the Gentiles as one of the seed lines of Abraham. The Jews, the seed of the law, and the Gentiles, the seed of faith, are together all the seed of Abraham. He's saying the Judeans are only part of the seed of Abraham. The Gentiles are the rest of the seed of Abraham. And the verse ends with Paul literally saying Abraham is the father of both the Judeans and these Greek-speaking people of Rome. It's really very clear in scripture. From Acts 2, 5, where it tells us that all people to gather together out of every nation under heaven for Pentecost, were all Judeans scattered across the, those nations. To Matthew 15:24, where Jesus himself tells us that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The connection between redemption and the Abrahamic covenant is very clear in Scripture. This is what Scripture clearly says. Yet the clarity of Scripture is not enough. There's another issue for the average Christian today. The problem is, to many Christians today, what Scripture clearly tells us simply feels unfair. When you read 1 Peter 2.9, which speaks of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, the idea that that applies to one specific people, one chosen race, and it does not apply to every other race, makes the average Christian day very uncomfortable. You can point out God chose those descriptive words in Scripture for a reason. You know, chosen, royal, holy, peculiar, all are words that imply one people being singled out from others. The very next verse references back to the prophecy in Hosea again of reuniting Israel, specifically Hosea 2.23. The passage in 1 Peter ties what most Christians regard as a reference to believers, a reference to the church, back again to the Abrahamic covenant, back to the seed line of Abraham. Yes. Scripture's clear, but even though scripture's clear, it sounds unfair to people today. To say only the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have access to the promise of salvation that comes with the Abrahamic covenant but someone born in China doesn't have that same access, strikes the average Christian today as unjust, as unfair. But I want to point something out. If it sounds unfair to someone that God chooses mercy on one and not on another, I want to urge that person to examine their understanding of salvation. You see, salvation is more complex than many people like to think. People like to think salvation is a simple, singular event. You have faith, you get saved, period, done. But there's actually a lot more involved in salvation. You know, scripture talks of predestination, election, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. All those are elements involved in salvation described in scripture. Theologians have a term for it. They call it ordo salutis, the order of salvation. But most Christians today don't think of all that when they think of being saved. Salvation to most Christians is simply being forgiven. They're thinking exclusively of justification, of being declared innocent or righteous in the outside of God. But thinking of salvation as simply or just forgiveness and nothing else. It's an oversimplification of salvation. In Romans 3.26, Jesus is said to be not only our justifier, but it says Jesus is also just. I want you to think for a second of an analogy. Suppose we had a young man shoplifted from a store. He's caught, stands before the court. The judge pardons him. There's no doubt he's guilty, but the judge simply forgives him and lets him go. Would you say justice has been done? Is that just? Well, no. I don't think anyone would imagine justice has been done if a judge simply declares a thief not guilty with nothing more to it. That's a lot like what the liberal judges are doing in places like San Francisco right now. They're refusing to punish shoplifters, and that's clearly not justice. Salvation is more than, more than just being declared innocent. Romans 3.26 says, Jesus justifies us, but Jesus is also just. The demands of justice are also satisfied. Now, if that judge in the analogy not only declared the young man not guilty, but the judge himself also paid restitution for the crime, we'd be getting closer to justice, wouldn't we? In salvation, Jesus not only declares us righteous, he also pays our sin debt. And on a side point, you know the, the cross is not just a symbol of mercy. Most Christians think of the cross as a symbol of the mercy of God, and it is. It's a symbol of mercy. When we look at the cross, we should be reminded of the mercy God showed for us. But the cross is equally a symbol of justice. The cross is a reminder that someone had to die for those sins. A debt had to be paid. When you see the cross, it should remind you not only of the mercy of God, but it should also remind you when you sin, someone must pay for that sin. Amen. Redemption is not actually free. God pays the price. The cross is a symbol of the absolute necessity of justice. So anyway, we see justification and redemption are both necessary elements of salvation. But let's go even further. What if that young man that steals is forgiven, his debts paid, what if he goes right back out and steals again? What if he laughs at the judge who paid his debt, continues to be a delinquent? Well, in that situation, forgiving him would not look like justice, would it? But if instead, after he's forgiven, after his debts paid, If he goes on to clean up his life, if he goes on to do his best to be an upstanding member of the community, if he goes on to help and bless others, we could then say the forgiveness he received may have been just, couldn't we? And that's sanctification. After justification, after redemption, a Christian must go on through sanctification. A Christian must become holy or there is no justice. There is no salvation. This is one area many Christians totally just completely forget about today. They get so wrapped up in forgiveness, so focused on forgiveness, that many don't give much thought to the need for sanctification. They've oversimplified salvation. But let me get to the point I want to make about how mainstream theology fails to accurately describe salvation. In the order of salvation, in these different elements of salvation, there are steps that involve us, steps that take our effort. For example, sanctification or becoming holy involves our decisions, our choices, our effort. The Holy Spirit helps to sanctify us. He drives us towards sanctification. But we have to take part too. We have to learn obedience to God's law. We have to act on it. We have to restrain our sin nature. We have to live holy lives. Sanctification involves our effort. We have choices to make. And the same goes for repentance. The same goes for faith. We are involved in these steps. But there are also steps in that path to salvation that are entirely an act of God. You know, justification and redemption, for example, are entirely acts of God. There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. There's nothing we can do to pay our debt. We have absolutely nothing of value to offer. Only God can pay our debt. Only God can do these things. We have no part. Justification and redemption are entirely up to God. So the road to salvation involves steps that involve our effort and steps that are entirely up to God. And one of those steps that are entirely up to God is election. God chooses who he will save. But modern th- mainstream theology reduces election to nothing. Mainstream theology reduces God's choice to a passive, automatic role. You have faith, you receive salvation, period. There is no decision for God to make. God doesn't choose one over another. Everyone who has faith gets saved, and this, this distorts salvation. Effectively, in mainstream theology, salvation is entirely up to us. It's determined solely by our choice to have faith. God has no actual choice. God has no actual role, no actual decision to make. God never says no. Now go back to the analogy of the thief being pardoned by the judge. What if everyone who stepped before the judge received a pardon? All they had to do was accept the pardon and without exception, everyone receives forgiveness. Would that be justice? Would it be mercy? If everyone gets it, if the judge says no to no one, people would come to expect the pardon, wouldn't they? People would think of forgiveness as a right, not as a mercy or a gift. The judge would become meaningless, just someone in the background, handing out pardons, passive and unimportant. Only the choice of the sinner would matter. If the sinner chooses a pardon, he gets it. The mainstream doctrine of salvation for everyone actually embodies a great deal of the pride of man. The importance of man is elevated and God is relegated to insignificance. I think it's worth noting Romans 4.2 says this, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Paul was pointing out the pride of the Jews who looked to law keeping for salvation. By basing salvation on works, on something they did, they were claiming glory for themselves. And then look at verse four. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Paul is saying, if salvation is dependent on something we do, then it's owed to us. It's no longer a gift. It's no longer grace, it's earned. When mainstream theology makes men's faith the only thing that matters, when they remove election from the equation, faith becomes a work. Mainstream theology is doing the same thing the ancient Pharisees did. They ignore the role God plays in salvation, they ignore election. If men's faith is the only thing that matters, salvation becomes a debt that is owed rather than a gift that is given. And that's not the role of faith. You know, faith does not actually save us as many Christians believe today. Faith grants us access to the covenant of mercy, but we were actually saved by God's grace. And I wanna point something out. Under the Abrahamic covenant, you know, men were commanded to be circumcised. If they weren't circumcised, they were cut off from their people. They lost access to the covenant. Circumcision granted Israelites access to this covenant of mercy. But in Genesis 34, there was a city of people, uh, uh, people called the Hivites, and they wanted to be joined to the Israelites and they agreed to be circumcised because they wanted to be one people with the Israelites. But circumcision couldn't make them Israelites. Circumcision did not grant them access to the blessing God contained in in the covenant. And faith is much the same. Paul explains in Romans chapter four, while circumcision was demanded by the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant was given to Abraham before he was circumcised. Mercy was granted to Abraham before he was circumcised. God didn't need the token. He didn't need circumcision. Circumcision was simply a sign of Abraham's faith and much like baptism is today. Faith was what God truly wanted. God wanted Abraham to trust him. That trust granted access to the promises God made. Paul explained this because the Gentiles were in the same position Abraham was. They had grown up or hadn't grown up with circumcision. They hadn't grown up with the law. They didn't have works. They had only faith. That's the role of faith. Faith grants access to the mercy of the covenant but while faith grants access to the covenant faith doesn't change the covenant faith doesn't change the promises that are made you know circumcision didn't make the hivites into israelites and faith doesn't change who you are god is the one granting mercy and god made the covenant with a specific people god made the promises to a specific seed line that seed line must have faith to access the covenant but that covenant remains what god made it to be a promise to a specific people Election is God's choice, not ours. Someone's faith doesn't force God to choose him. God holds the sovereign right to grant mercy or to not grant mercy on whoever he wants. God requires faith for us to access that mercy, but God still decides who that mercy belongs to. That's election, and election is a step in salvation that is entirely up to God. You know, at the first Passover, God chose to save Israel, but God did not save Egypt. Israel was saved, but every family in Egypt was decimated by the loss of their firstborn. Now, this wasn't because Israel was righteous. They weren't. It also wasn't because Israel had faith. Yes, they showed faith by applying the blood of the lamb at Passover. But they didn't really trust God as they showed time and again in the wilderness. They were only only learning faith at the time. You know, and on the other side, among the millions of Egyptians, at least a few of them would have been good and kind people. Yet every Egyptian lost their firstborn. God choosing Israel over Egypt wasn't about the people. It was purely about God's choice. And the reason God did this, the reason God chose or saved Israel and not Egypt was that God had made a promise to the fathers of Israel. God chose to have mercy on Abraham, on Isaac and on Jacob. And he gave them a promise, but he didn't give the same promise to the Egyptians. That was election. It was the sovereignty of God. You know, if the plagues had caused the Egyptian people to proclaim belief in the true God, that doesn't mean God would suddenly have brought the Egyptians up out of, the, of, of, of Egypt and given them the promised land alongside the Israelites. God chose Israel, he didn't choose Egypt. You know, faith would not make the Egyptians Israelites any more than circumcision made the Hivites Israelites. Now, was that fair? People might say that was, it, that was Old Testament, that was before the cross, that was before faith. The average Christian might think that God would never do something like that today. You know, but in Romans nine seventeen, Paul says this, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. Amen. You know, so to explain election, Paul points to Pharaoh. Paul brings up what happened in Egypt and Paul addresses the idea it's unfair. Paul goes on to say, God is a potter, we are the clay. God has the right to do with us as he will. Paul says God makes some people for honor, some for dishonor. Paul says God makes some vessels specifically for wrath, specifically for destruction. That's what Pharaoh was, a vessel created specifically for destruction. And yes, this example is from before the cross, it's from the Old Testament. But the Apostle Paul is using this example, citing this example to describe election today, how it works after the cross. It sounds unfair to people, but does God have the right to say no to someone? All have sinned, all of creation was corrupted by the fall. No one deserves salvation. If God says no to one man, if he says no to a whole people, if God says no to most of the world, it's not unfair. To the contrary, that is justice. That is entirely fair. And does God have the right to have mercy? We all know he does. his, His is the king, he is the king of the universe. This is his universe. He can have mercy on anyone he wants. His mercy is not unfair. So the question becomes, does God have the right to do both? To say no to one man and give mercy to another? If that sounds unfair to you, then Christianity sounds unfair to you. Because that is Christianity. If you accept the sovereignty of God, if you accept the lordship of Christ, he has every right to do exactly that. That's God's choice, that's election. And the average Christian today loses something vital by not understanding that. You know, you cannot understand the magnitude of grace that God has given us unless you realize it isn't given to everyone. You cannot understand how special the mercy you have been shown is unless you realize not everyone receives the same mercy. You know, if a man gives a woman an engagement ring, it means something, it means a great deal. But if that same man gives a ring to every woman he meets, it stops meaning anything. You cannot understand the magnitude of God's grace unless you accept the fact that he didn't give it to everyone. And also you cannot understand justice if no one receives it. God chose to have mercy on a particular people. God chose to treat them as his children, as his heirs. That's God's right. It shouldn't sound unfair to anyone. God chose to have mercy on both Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles are not different peoples. Jews and Gentiles are simply different traditions. Paul teaches us in the book of Romans, Jews and Gentiles are brothers who grew up apart, one with the law, one without, but they're the same people. They're the people on whom God chose to have mercy. They're the people God chose to redeem. They're the children of Abraham who God made a promise to so long ago. No one deserves salvation, including them, but God made an exception. God made an exception for a few. God gave grace to a few. And understanding that is key to Christianity. It's key to understanding the true magnitude of the gift of mercy we've been given. It's key to the humility necessary for Christianity. It's key to understanding both justice and mercy. There's no room for pride when you truly understand election. There's no room for pride even for a child of Abraham. You know, Esau was a child of Abraham, and God did not choose him. There's no room for pride because we realize God doesn't have to choose any of us. Understanding election means God remains sovereign, and we remain entirely at his mercy. As it says in Romans nine fifteen. He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Let's be truly thankful for the promise of mercy that God made to our fathers so long ago. Thank you.